Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. Today we welcome to the podcast Dr. Ahmed Ersoy, who is a professor of history at Boğaziçi University in Istanbul. Uh, Dr. Ersoy, uh, I know you're a, a long-awaited guest on the podcast, so thanks so much for being with us today. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the topic of our discussion today is architecture and historical imagination in the late Ottoman Empire. We will be drawing from Dr. Ersoy's recently published book um, entitled Architecture and the Late Ottoman Historical Imaginary, Reconfiguring the Architectural Past in a Modernizing Empire. This episode will be part of a new series that we have on the Ottoman History Podcast called The Visual Past, which is curated by Emily Neumeyer and Unver Rustem, which explores the visual, spatial, and material culture that shaped the Ottoman world. So Dr. Ersoy, a discussion of your book, I think is a really interesting addition to this series um, because the book is both about the visual past and also about a text. Um, it is specifically centers on an 1873 text that discusses the history and theory of Ottoman architecture called Usuli Mimariye Usmani, the foundations of Ottoman architecture. And I have to apologize to all of our Turkophone listeners for pronouncing Ottoman words with an Arabic accent. That's okay, it's perfect. So uh, I thought we could just start off by asking you to introduce the book to us. Um, you know, what kinds of subjects does it discuss? How is it structured? Yeah, well, um as you said, it centers on one text, which initially sounds very boring. But what I'm trying to understand is to use this text from 1873, which is partly the first actually written architectural history, a modern form of architectural history in the Ottoman, in the world actually. But at the same time, it works within its period as a manifesto of a new movement that had emerged in Ottoman architecture from the 1860s onwards, which drew heavily upon both the Orientalists, you know, Western Orientalist repertoire of forms, including Spanish, Moorish, Indian, as well as from, you know, local early and classical Ottoman sources. So this new architectural movement, which they called the Renaissance uh, of Ottoman architecture, was being promoted and, you know, the authors were trying to give an intellectual depth of field uh, to a new architectural movement, uh, trying to create a historical background to it and trying to promote it as a new style that would be integrated within the global network of emerging eclectic styles in the 19th century. So that's the kind of source uh, I'm trying to and deal with. And this is the, mm -hmm. the Foundations of Ottoman Architecture, exactly. published in 1873. 1873. That, that's where I'm moving from. Right. Uh, what I try to do in the book uh, is to take this text as a symptom of the very complex conflicting realities of the late Tanzimat. Because um, I'm mainly concentrating on the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, which is a period that corresponds to the second generation of Tanzimat reformers, people who have been already marinated within the system of the Tanzimat, people who had been educated uh, within the new modernized uh, institutions of the Tanzimat. So this is a period that brings forward all sorts of you know, westernized dandies and fops right. and whatever. Right. So uh, maybe we could ask mm -hmm. you then to tell us a little bit about who the authors were. Right. Um, you okay. know, they are obviously emerging from this particular moment in sort of the history of, of the late Ottoman Empire, um, 
who wrote the mm -hmm. book? It's a very cosmopolitan bunch uh, of authors. Uh, and, you know, when I present my work um, in, you know, workshops, conferences, this is the kind of question that I get initially is, you know, you have these people who are Levantines, Armenians, people of Italian origin, French origin, who had been naturalized in the Ottoman Empire. So, you know, how authentic is this work? And this is particularly the kind of question that I'm trying to deal with here. Here, we're dealing with an officially commissioned publication that was destined for the World Exposition in Vienna in 1873, but then also this was a work that was distributed to different libraries and that was purchased in different parts of the world as well. So, also a commercial So, were the authors of the book then, mm -hmm. were they selected by the government or by the Sultan, or did they apply, or how did they come to... They belonged to this network uh, of artists and intellectuals and architects that were formed around the Ministry of Public Works, which was directed by Ibrahim Atampasha, who was the father of Osman Hamdi Bey, the painter and the archaeologist. So it was the close network uh, of Osman Hamdi Bey, who was also the commissioner for the Ottoman exhibition uh, in Vienna. So you have these people like Montani, Italian-born, Levantine family uh, living here in Para, uh, Marie de Launay, who was one of the most important agents in the formation of the book, uh, who was French-born, romantic guy with medievalist sentiments, who found himself in Istanbul after the Crimean War and started working uh, in the ministry. Uh, Kyocholo Kirkor, who was their friend. Bogos Shashian, again, lawyer and painter, who happened to be part of this network. So how did this kind of very eclectic mm -hmm. group of artists and thinkers you know, was it obvious from the beginning that they would be commissioned to write was a history of architecture? Um, how did yep. they come to write, you know, mm -hmm. why, why architecture? Were there other texts that were being presented as well? Yeah, the Vienna Exposition was a big deal. Just before the economic crash in 1873, the Viennese, the Austro-Hungarian uh, uh, government was trying to make this a statement, the exposition a statement of the unique placement of Austria-Hungary between the East and the West. So this was kind of going to be a showcase demonstrating kind of closeness of Austria-Hungary with Eastern nations. So they collaborated very closely with the Ottomans. But the problem was that the Ottomans didn't have enough money to make a major show mm. uh, in, the, um, in the exposition. And they had their rivals, the Egyptians, who were building these magnificent buildings in the exposition. So the Ottomans thought that they would uh, sort of compensate for their loss of buildings. They were doing these little-scale buildings in the exposition with some, by demonstrating some academic skills, by demonstrating their knowledge. Interesting. So in, in the, the fact of their inability to actually build buildings in the exhibition hall meant mm -hmm. that they wanted to bring to the table um, sort of textual evidence of their historical skill as exactly. builders. Exactly. So three texts uh, that were exhibited. One of them was like an archaeological guidebook of Istanbul, 
written by the director of the uh, archaeological museum. Uh, the second was a costume album, the HBC Osmania, a photographic album of costumes uh, from around the empire. And the third was the Usulimi Mari Osmani. So these were commissioned all together in order to demonstrate the different facets of the cultural identity of the empire. This was a major kind of well-coordinated effort of self-representation, actually. So I want to get back to something you said earlier about the fact that you're often asked the question, how authentic is this text? Um, and what I understand from the book and also from your tone of voice is that that is not the question that you think is the most fruitful way to approach this text. So I exactly. guess, you know, as a way to get to a better question, um, what would a better question be about mm -hmm. how to approach this text mm -hmm. rather than to ask about its authenticity given right. the sort of cosmopolitan background of its authors? Yeah. Um, well, I think this is the kind of wrong question that could be asked concerning all different aspects of Ottoman art and culture at this time. And indeed, Ottoman history in general. <laughs> Ottoman history in general yeah. as well, of course, of course. But more particularly, I'm talking about art, architecture and photography because, I mean, almost exclusively, all of the professionals who were involved in these fields belong to the non-Muslim minorities, or they were foreigners working in the Ottoman Empire. <clears throat> so you could ask this wrong question about any facet of quote-unquote Ottoman culture, quote-unquote Ottoman art at this period. How authentic it was, right. you know, how local um, it was. And this was indeed the kind of questions that mostly Turkish, but also foreign art and architectural historians asked through the 20th century. Uh, as they were using the westernization paradigm, to interpret uh, Ottoman history, and they were seeing these agents as not very authentic, uh, not very local uh, individuals who were kind of cultural compradors, right. who were serving the needs of Western hegemony. And who were bringing the perfect forms that emerged in Western culture right. to be sort of imperfectly or less perfectly copied by their Ottoman exactly. imitators who were mm -hmm. considered to be behind, right? So Ottoman art and culture was basically defined through the late 18th into the 19th century uh, by modern historians as a, a parody, as an inept kind of imitation of what was happening in the Western mainstream. And I think this is entirely deceptive and a very uh, unfruitful way of looking uh, at how artistic, architectural, cultural production was taking place at this time. What I'm trying to argue in this book is that by taking this evidence of the Usulimi Mari Osmani, we actually see that these people who are considered to be, by modern historians, to be marginals, cosmopolitans, people who were deracinated, unrooted, who had no right, connections the French, to the core of local Ottoman, culture. Ottoman, the Levantine or Ottoman. Take Osman Hamdi, who was a very, you know, Frenchified, quote-unquote, West-toxicated uh, individual who, you know, went by Western way ways and everything. But what we see is that the first instance, the first discourse localizing, nationalizing discourse about architecture and art uh, in the Ottoman Empire emerged in the hands of these people. And then it followed the track that they set uh, initially with Usuli Mimari Osmani because the kind of framework, narrative, discursive framework that they set, delineating the, the rise, the, you know, the classical age and the decline of Ottoman art and architecture, 
um, actually survived into the Republican era uh, within the writing of architectural history. So it had a, a very powerful impact. So what I'm trying to argue is that you have to look at these networks without being fixed to rigid notions of locality and identity. Which are also in some ways ahistorical, right? I mean, exactly. because these people exactly. were, you know, our contemporary notions of what it means to belong to a place um, are not necessarily useful when thinking about the Ottoman Empire. Exactly. These are people with complex multiple allegiances. Right. Uh, so you need to understand the very specific, you need to surgically historicize and to try to understand how these networks work together under certain conditions in order to create these new discourses of identity, alterity, right. locality, authenticity. But I want to, and maybe this is also something you've encountered from other readers of your work, I want to ask you about the sort of labeling of these actors as cosmopolitan, mm -hmm. as a way of um, sort of directing us away from questions about authenticity, mm -hmm. which is to say that, you know, to my mind, does seem striking. It does seem that there should be something to be made of the fact that many of these are what you call hyphenated Ottomans, right? French, Levantine, Italian backgrounds. Yeah. It seems to me that they were positioned differently vis-a-vis -vis the state. Uh, they were positioned differently vis-a-vis -vis the artistic communities, right? So I wonder, without asking how authentic they were, mm -hmm. right, uh, whether there is a question about power relations and about their social positioning that would be important to understanding the kind of as you say, the nationalist mm -hmm. vision that came out of this work, which we'll get to in a few minutes. Right. Um, I wouldn't make a distinction between people of foreign, non-Ottoman origin and uh, westernized Ottomans, elites, and non-Ottoman communities. The kind of distinction we have to make involves these networks, privileged networks, yeah. who have access to power. Exactly. And therefore, of course, I mean, the end product all of the end products that we're talking about, including the Usuli, Mimari, Osmani, is informed by the very elite, privileged, paternalistic position that these people are taking vis-a-vis -vis the Ottoman past. So in many interesting ways, when I'm looking at this text, it's a very laminated, layered kind of narrative, uh, the Usuli, Mimari, Osmani, because it draws upon local sources as well as Western discourses. But what it's trying to do is it's trying to create this very puristic notion of the progress of the Ottoman Empire and Ottoman architecture in many places to the detriment of non-Muslim communities. Interesting. So maybe we could turn then to the actual content of the book. I mean, what was the narrative? Referred to it as a national mm -hmm. narrative. Um, Pro maybe proto-national. Proto-national, right, given that we're in the uh, 1870s. Yeah. Um, what is the, the vision of the Ottoman past that they're portraying through this history of architecture? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, what I'm trying to do in the book is I'm reading Usul's text in parallel form with emerging narratives of modern history uh, in the Ottoman Empire. And there, what I encounter is that with great skill and dexterity, many Ottoman authors are straddling between local rooted narratives as well as modern, more historicizing and orientalizing narratives that they appropriate from the West. So, you know, one of the interesting aspects of this book is how skillfully it uses Orientalist scholarly knowledge. Mm -hmm. I think this holds true for all Ottoman 
authors of the period. I mean, uh, without the work, the reference of Hammer von Puchstall, mm. I think, most of Ottoman history from you know, mid-19th uh, century onward would be undiscussable. It's, yes. it's that important of a reference. So this very, I think, careful engagement uh, with Orientalist scholarly knowledge and its appropriation for the purposes of a modern Ottoman narrative of emergence, rise, and decline shows up in many different kinds of narratives. And that's what I'm trying to understand. In the case of architecture, it's by now a very you know, well-known story of Ottoman architecture emerging and gaining its strength in the classical age when the Ottomans were ruling the world. And then from the 18th century onward, it, you know, your usual decline paradigm. For them, the decline is an aesthetic decline? Um, or, or what are the terms? Yeah. I mean, because it strikes me that the terms are going to be somewhat different from the sort of standard historical narrative mm -hmm. about you know, imperial power growing yeah. And then declining. Um, mm -hmm. So what, what are the terms by which they measure? The terms that they use are more specifically aesthetic, uh, where they discuss the infiltration of foreign forms, uh, which are not natural mm. to the climate of this country. So they, then, they themselves are raising a question about authenticity, I mean. Exactly. This is one of the initial attempts where the Ottomans are trying to define a modern sense of authenticity, not only for themselves, but also for promoting a kind of mode of Ottoman cultural difference to the rest of the world. It's a very uh, kind of unique way of trying to localize Ottoman architecture, emphasize its difference and authenticity, but at the same time trying to make it a part and parcel of the Western mainstream as well. So can you maybe give us an example of um, a kind of building or set of buildings that they consider to be a good example of what a kind of mm -hmm. authentic Ottoman architectural aesthetic at its peak would look like? Right. Okay, now I have to correct myself because um, what we encounter in the usul is not exactly the kind of 20th century narrative where you know, the Ottoman architectural style and aesthetics reaches its peak in the 16th century. It's more complex. I mean, they talk about the 16th century as the epitome, apogee of the Ottoman Empire mm. and everything, and they um, glamorize uh, Sinan, the architect Sinan, but at the same time, they're very keen on promoting, going back to the roots and promoting the early Ottoman period, uh, late 14th, early 15th centuries, as a period of successful synthesis, uh, where they take elements from Byzantium, they take elements from Iran and Arab architecture, the Islamic legacy, and bring them together in a very unique synthetic form. This is what appealed to them. I think, because this was exactly what they were trying to do in the 19th century when and they indeed, were drawing this is elements from... the question of the 19th century, exactly, how to exactly. draw in new elements mm -hmm. while remaining authentic and while, exactly. you know, making them, mm -hmm. elevating them in a way. Right. So to look back in an earlier past and cast it as a moment when Ottoman culture was particularly able to do that seems exactly. to be very powerful. Exactly. So, I mean, for them, the 16th century was amazing, glorious, uh, but it was, I don't know, static is a good word. 
but it wasn't a period that appealed to them in terms of their professional ideals. The more synthetic periods, early 18th century, that so-called tulip era, where Western elements were blending with local elements, and the early Ottoman period, these very uh, kind of quasi-cacophonic, but at the same time very synthetic, periods of synthetic potential, were actually their models. That's really interesting because what, what I think we're seeing here is the way that um, these writers used sort of the realm of, of aesthetic forms to posit an authenticity that wasn't about an essence, but was actually about a syncretic potential, exactly. right? So to be Ottoman was to be able to bring together many elements successfully and elevate them, which as you pointed out, mm -hmm. you know, very useful thing to claim in the 19th century. Right. I'm not claiming that this was across the board, that this was cultural policy. I'm trying to be very careful in right. specifying and historicizing that, you know, this is one instance where you have one network working for the state and creating this idea of history and future. And there are many different layers uh, of such products that make up what we might call Ottoman cultural production at that period. One I think important aspect here that goes into this syncretic kind of milieu is the, the use of Orientalism, uh, where, uh, you know, this is something that we consider generally to be negative in terms yeah. of our references. So one of the things that has been um, coming up in, in the way that you talk about this text and other texts like it is the really important role that Orientalist scholarship played in forming um, the new notions of history writing and of writing about aesthetics and architecture. Um, and in the book, you describe this book as, as a sort of example of non-Western Orientalism um, or Ottoman Orientalism. And this is a term that may not be familiar to all of our listeners who may be more familiar with the sort of Saidian version of Orientalism, which casts it as a relationship between the West and the non-West. So could you tell us what you mean by a non-Western Orientalism? Right. There's already a good kind of collection of essays that have been produced on the topic of Ottoman Orientalism, starting with Usama Makdisi's and Selim Deringil's work, as well as uh, Vagelis Kekriotis um, and other names. But I think uh, what I'm trying to get at here in the book is to build upon, I mean, not really dismantle, uh, entirely the Saidian framework, which is very useful, especially when you're looking at the political side of how Orientalism works, but to try to be more specific in understanding how Orientalism works in other non-confrontational contexts, let's say. By non-confrontational, what I'm trying to say is that the Saidian core argument has this very oppositional uh, dualistic uh, kind of tinge to Right. It. So maybe we should just say mm -hmm. that obviously this is the argument articulated by Edward Said in his seminal text by the title of Orientalism, yes. where he argues that the West, Westerns, particularly literary and sort of aesthetic mm -hmm. pursuits, produced a vision of the Orient that actually exoticized it, that made it seem other right. um, and backwards, and that that kind of literary and artistic production was actually key to the erecting of a colonial and imperial sort of right. scaffold, right. right? So so all of these aesthetic, literary, scholarly uh, pursuits that can be grouped under Orientalism are actually symptoms 
of a very strong power imbalance and a very strong imperial pursuit. Right. Um, so what this brings forth is a very oppositional and dualistic kind of perspective where you have the oppressor and the oppressed, where you have the hegemonizer and somebody who is either silenced or who is trying to speak back, trying to oppose the main system. Right. So in this sense, there's a very, almost a militant tinge to this kind of portrayal, which I like a lot, actually. And I think it's ve still very useful. But it also but, leaves mm -hmm. you, uh, when you encounter, for example, and, and I encounter this in reading you know, um, texts by Arab intellectuals in the late mm. 19th century, for them, indeed, the work of Orientalist scholars is part of their worldview. It's part yeah. of what they're reading. It's yeah. part of what they're in conversation mm -hmm. with. So it leaves, I mean, the sort of Saidian binary leaves you in kind of um, a pickle when mm -hmm. you encounter these forms elsewhere and you don't want to fall back on the kind of false consciousness of, oh, you know, these Ottomans are complicit in their mm -hmm. own hegemonizing. Right. Uh, right. So I'm curious, you know, how and, do you, how do you approach? But I'm not saying that, I mean, I, I can't argue that the Ottomans are not doing it, that they're innocent, mm. you see. The way Usamat Makdisi talks about Ottoman Orientalism has a gist of truth to it, as in terms of how the ways, the very rooted ways in which the Ottomans were viewing their Arab and Kurdish subjects. Right, okay? so, there's so a Mactasi, power imbalance there. Mactasi argues mm -hmm. that the Ottomans use some of the same tropes and same techniques, um, discursive techniques, to other and exoticize their, particularly their Arab peripheries, exactly. as a mm -hmm. way of sort of almost expanding their empire into mm -hmm. the Arab world and right. other peripheral so, spaces. So I think that's there, definitely that's there, and Selim Deringil talks about it as well. Uh, but then what I'm trying to explore is that this is not the whole story, and there are other layers uh, to the way that Orientalism was appropriated, reconfigured uh, in the Ottoman Empire. It was used by many groups as a form of identifying themselves or alteritizing others. There are many diverse forms of Orientalism. And beyond the Saidian core framework, I'm you know, trying to draw upon the works of people like Lisa Lowell, who argues that Orientalism never comes as this pure, isolated discourse. It is always laminated and kind of engaged with other forms of alterity, gender-based alterity, ethnicity-based alterity, race, or class-based alterity. So could you yeah. give us an example, maybe from the usul, mm -hmm. about sort of how Orientalist um, schemas or tropes are more complicated than we might mm -hmm. initially think? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In terms of uh, the writing of architectural history, Orientalist discourse has this very rigid, generalizing vision of Islamic architecture. And the main defining future of Islamic architecture is ornament mm. within this Orientalist framework. This, from the contemporary framework, when we look at it, it appears to be very unappetizing. Okay? It's a very kind of condescending and generalizing view of Islamic architecture in general. There's nothing beyond ornament. You know, what's useful about it is the ornament. It doesn't have the rational structure that you know, uh, Western architecture has developed over. Uh, a millennia, but what the Ottoman authors are doing is that they're taking this and they're trying to turn this into a melange of 
Western mainstream and kind of Orientalist quality. What I'm trying to say is that they're trying to claim, they're trying to say that the Ottoman architecture is part and parcel of the greater Islamic package. But nevertheless, what the Ottomans have done is they've taken this amazing ornamental kind of heritage and skill and they've merged it with more rationalized, quote-unquote, westernizing skills of their own. This was the Ottoman miracle, if you will. And I think at this moment, you know, it also is helpful to remember that, for example, this book was written as the Egyptians were also mm -hmm. um, making a play to represent the Orient to the West at right. the Vienna World's Fair mm -hmm. and more broadly. Um, so I think this is another thing that can kind of trouble the binary that's often assumed by Orientalism, which mm -hmm. is that there were multiple... Orients. I mean, there were multiple spaces, mm -hmm. groups mm -hmm. trying to speak in the name of the Orient. Right. Um, so, exactly. If we go back to Usama Makdisi uh, again, so it's not just the Turkish-speaking Ottomans uh, and the Arab-speaking Ottomans, but there are many different groups of different origins who can come into play within this dualistic framework uh, of Orientalism, either to identify themselves or others as Orientals. And there are very intricate, very complex ways of doing this. So what the Usul is promoting, you know, I was saying that it has this scheme of emergence uh, and uh, efflorescence and then decline, but then the narrative doesn't end there. There's also the end of the narrative comes with a trope of the Renaissance. The Ottomans are reinventing their past, going back to their roots. This is where Orientalism comes in handy because the way the Ottomans are defining their Renaissance, this new, again, revitalizing, syncretic approach to architecture draws heavily upon Orientalist repertoire of forms. So Orientalism is used as a way by the Ottomans to define their identity and difference in a way that is recognizable universally. So while trying to define their difference, they're also trying to uh, avoid being marginalized. Yeah, and to claim entrance into a space of universal knowledge production, mm -hmm. right, um, that's at this moment starting to be occupied by the writing of history and mm -hmm, other mm -hmm, mm -hmm. new emerging disciplines. Right. Um, we have another episode with Ali Wick that we just put out a few weeks ago where he argues that even the terms of history writing are also in some ways products of the Western episteme. But mm -hmm. indeed at this moment, those terms are... The understood as the universal terms. Exactly, and it's not that our expectations that these people, the Ottomans, would refute and fight against this colonizing hegemonic discourse. They're not. They're trying to be part and parcel of the Western mainstream, but their main agenda is to retain a kind of difference because they consider themselves to be the main rightful representatives of Islamic heritage. Mm. So this is why I'm saying that the Usul comes at a period where you have the second generation of Tanzimat reformers who have this very deep anxiety uh, about cultural loss, the loss of cultural character. And they're trying to look back at their history and to redefine it in a form that could make them retain a sense of authenticity. And that's where Orientalism comes in handy. I think this is a, just a great example that actually stretches far beyond the history of, of architecture or art or even aesthetics, which is it gives us really a sense of the kind of fine line that 
Ottoman intellectuals and statesmen and you know, others were walking at this moment, right? Because there are all of these new forms that are being presented as necessary and universal mechanisms of progress, whether it's the telegraph or the printing press or a new form of history or a certain architectural aesthetic, but there's also a need to present an authentic exactly. self that exactly. can hold the empire together, right. right? So this is a very difficult balancing act, and I think exactly. you know your reading of this text really gives us a sense of that. I'm curious if it resonated at all in built forms. I mean, were these kind of insights, did they ever translate into actual buildings that were contemporary with the, the publication of the text? Yeah, the buildings come first uh, before the text especially with the enthronement of Abdulaziz uh, from 1861 onwards, uh, we see a, a very consistent trend uh, towards appropriating orientalizing forms, especially um, uh, Spanish uh, Islamic uh, forms as well as Persian, uh, some Indian, combined with medievalizing Gothic forms. This turns through the 18... 60s, 70s, and 80s through the Hamidian era into an almost official idiom of Ottoman architecture. As more conservative tendencies for retaining Ottoman identity and standing against the world and representing the Islamic world uh, gain prominence in official policy. The examples that are given in the text in the Usul as being the most prominent examples of the Ottoman Renaissance are the Aksaray uh, Paratevniyal Valide Mosque and the Chiran Palace. But then the whole period is actually full of these buildings that carry these orientalizing and medievalizing details. To some people, it's a very unpalatable, uh, eclectic mishmash uh, of 19th century junk. But, you know, I'm not really You're interested, not interested in, in aesthetic the normative quali judgment. qualifications <laughs> right. that it's good or bad, but I, I right. find and it we fascinating. Can, we can put up some, some pictures uh, to accompany this episode so that our listeners can decide for themselves what they make of this mm. after hearing your talk. The last thing I wanted to ask about the, the text in particular is that you note that it kind of stands alone. So this, the Foundations of Ottoman Architecture is published in 1873, and then it's not until the early 20th century that a tradition of writing history of architecture actually emerges. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Does it kind of fall on deaf ears? Does it not get read by Ottoman scholars? Uh, What's the I story? I think it is because, you know, when you follow the track and, you know, when you come to the beginning of the 20th century, where you have more institutionalized, uh, more academic forms of architectural discussion, you see the traces, very, very strong traces. I think it was a very formative text uh, in terms of setting up the main narrative framework of how Ottoman architecture progressed. So I think it was definitely read, but it was too early in terms of the institutional and scholarly kind of infrastructure uh, because the School of Fine Arts was established in the 1880s and then it really takes some time for a more academic kind of discussion to evolve. What I find interesting is that from the 1850s onwards, there's a very intense restoration activity that's going on all around the empire. After the uh, Bursa fire in the 1850s, they're restoring all of these early Ottoman buildings. So that's where I find the 
basics, the very foundations of this new architectural discourse about history, but then the way it comes to full fruition in the form of a scholarly a discourse right. takes a lot of time. Right. Uh, so in time that sense, Yusul is unique. The, these generations of people right. who can write about it, but it's very interesting that you continue to see the effects of it's, this text uh, long yeah. into the 20th and, century. And it's not, I mean, I should correct uh, if, I mean, uh, I expressed it wrongly that you know, through the 1880s and 90s, when you look at, for instance, Ottoman journals and newspapers, in some journals have these series of articles on architectural history, the architecture of the Islamic world. So it the moves into Empire. a new form. Uh, so there is some sort of public discussion, mm -hmm. uh, but it's very minimal up until the, you know, the revolution. In also the probably because it was quite expensive to write and publish a book like this, right? I mean, this was a commissioned work for the World's Fair. It drew on, you know, many groups of scholars. Uh, I mean, so... This know, was a luxury production. It's a luxury but, product, I mean, you, you, yeah. You don't necessarily need to do that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you could... There are pamphlets, little booklets uh, on architectural history that come out in the early 20th century. You know, that could have been done in the 1880s. But, you know, so we're more limited to newspaper and, and journal articles. So I guess I wanted to close the episode by asking you, you know, given the conversation that we've had today about the relationship between the built form, writing about the built form, and national identity, cultural identity. Um, I'm curious, you know, if you could just comment a little bit on what, you know, we're, we're recording today in Istanbul, mm -hmm. uh, which is a city that has been under in the process of being utterly transformed by building projects everywhere. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious if you could just comment a little bit on sort of what do you see as the role of the built form and architecture in general vis-a-vis -vis cultural identity, national identity mm -hmm. uh, in Turkey today or in Istanbul today. Yeah, I finished the book in, I think it was 2013, right after the Gezi events. And then I submitted it. But then, you know, after the Gezi events and the whole event... The, which the we should say, these were protests which mm -hmm. kind of rocked Istanbul based on the planned destruction of Gezi Park, a public space um, in the center of the city. Right. For building a shopping center that uh, yes, was modeled after an Ottoman building that was built at the very period that I'm working on uh, from... Um, Actually, there was an already existing building, but during the Abdulaziz era, during the 1860s, they reorientalized uh, the building and turned it into a form that you know we could label under a group under the Ottoman Renaissance. Uh, and then the building was destructed. The park was made during the Republican era. So the whole deal was that the government was trying to cut down the trees and rebuild this Orientalist building. Uh, so we're now living, you know, under the AKP, the Justice and Development Party. We're living in a new, very uh, conservatively oriented and nationalistic rule, which I think uses architecture, especially, in order to uh, kind of publicly display its global uh, Islamizing goals. So it's the whole story, you know, again, of appropriating Orientalist forms. The kind of buildings that the, the government is promoting draws heavily upon the Orientalist repertoire, as well as from Ottoman and Seljuk forms, and, you know, tries to uh, synthesize them together in order to create this new neo-Ottoman kind of form that 
they think represents uh, their agendas and visions. This is really fascinating because in a way, I guess it's sort of ironic that the contemporary government is turning to the very moment when syncretism was being um, held up as the ideal by the authors of mm -hmm. the usul as its own kind of moment to show authenticity, right? I mean, I yeah. hadn't known that the building that they were trying to erect in Gezi was from this very period or, a, you know, a version of a building that had existed in this very period. So that actually seems kind of telling in a way. Exactly. So this whole turn of events, especially after 2013, the Gezi um, uh, uprisings, I felt compelled to write the epilogue because I started to reconsider my own vision of these buildings and discourses of identity. Uh, not that I was uncritical, but I think, um, you know, when we're talking about the Azizian or Hamidian eras, I have this sense of professional historical distance. But when we're talking about the contemporary period, you know, I was there in the Gezi and, you know, it, in many ways it was a very threatening kind of environment. And, you know, to see how architecture revivalism uh, of forms can be used to manipulate these very oppressive agendas uh, kind of opened my eyes to a new, I think, more critical stance towards any kind of architectural style or revival that is used by uh, power holders in a way that is very oppressive, very final, uh, that doesn't leave any space for alternatives or discussion. And this was also the case with the late Ottoman revival of Ottoman architecture, where, you know, if we're talking about a multi-ethnic, multi-confessional empire, you know, the kind of revival that these people were bringing was solely, mainly indexed to the expectations of the Turkish-speaking Muslim elite. Even though, in the case of the Usul, the writers themselves mm -hmm. belong to the very communities whose influence architectural heritage was in some ways being flattened or removed from the story. So I think that's a really sort of powerful reflection as... You know, we all, I mean, many of us live in cities where these processes of transformation and rebuilding are constantly ongoing. Um, and I think, you know, it, it gives us a, a lot to think about just as we walk around and notice what's happening, um, certainly in Istanbul, but also elsewhere. So uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was a, a long-awaited and, and very fascinating episode. Oh, I thank um, you. For those who want to find out more, you can pick up a copy of the book, uh, which is called Architecture and the Late Ottoman Historical Imaginary, which was published um, by Ashgate Press in 2015. We will also post a bibliography for this episode uh, with the many scholars who have been mentioned, as well as other readings that might be of interest to listeners um, on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. We also invite you to leave comments and questions on our website, as well as to join us on Facebook, where we stay in touch with our community of over 20,000 listeners now. And we also post news about upcoming series and episodes, including others from the series that this episode is a part of, called The Visual Past. That's all for this episode. So until next time, take care.